Okay, if you've got a Bible, we're going to jump into it. So you can open with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 25 through 33 tonight. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to see really quick, uh, how many of you would consider yourselves or you would say that you are a sports person? Show of hands. Okay. All right, that's a pretty good chunk of you. How many of you are like, no, I would not consider myself a sports person, right? Brendan, seriously? You cannot raise your hand for that. That's a lie. Okay. Here's the thing. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to love sports to be a Christian. So you guys are safe. But this illustration I'm opening with may not mean much to you. So there you go. Growing up as a kid, uh, my family always did sports. So if I had to raise my hand for one, it would be I'm on the sports side of things. And so I played soccer and I swam on a swim team for several years. Loved getting to do that. And then when I hit high school, I actually switched and I played football and I threw in track and field. So those were kind of my four sports. I loved them. I loved the team camaraderie. I loved everything about them. But the the one sport that I usually don't tell people I played, and it's not because I don't love it, but I just never think to mention it, is I actually played tennis for a while. So any fans of tennis in the room? Carla, I know you're here. It's fun, isn't it? It's it's, It's a very technical game. Tennis is very technical, very skill-based, okay? But when you play tennis, uh, there is an expression that they like to use at the end of the game. And here's how it goes. At the end of the game, you'll hear them say it. They go, game, set, match. Any of you heard that phrase before? Game? We sports. Yeah, there you go. That's like, (laughs) man, we are like Gen Z now. (laughs) You guys may not know about this, but on we sports, there's... No. In real tennis... You have game, set, match. And so here's how that works. The way that they score things in tennis is a little bit different than like football or something like that. What you have is you have a game and you have to, wear, uh, you have to win a certain amount of games to win a set. And then you have to win a certain amount of sets. It's usually two to win the match. And so when someone says game, set, match, what they're communicating to you is that somebody just won the, the game, which then domino effects, they won the, the set, which domino effects, they won the match. And the reason why I really like that term is it kind of captures this idea of an absolutely final victory. It's complete. Like there's no second guessing it. Game, set, match, victory. And uh, the reason why I bring that up uh, for tonight is because I think the idea of game, set, match really captures the heart of what Jesus is about to tell his disciples in John chapter 16. If you uh, are just joining us, for the last two months, we've been studying the final words of Jesus to his disciples before Judas's betrayal. Jesus Christ is about to go to the cross, and what I have appreciated so much as I've studied this conversation, this dialogue, is that Jesus does not pull any punches. He's very honest with the disciples. He wants them to be ready. And so he talks about the sorrows they're going to face. He talks about the fact that he's going to die soon. Uh, He talks about how after that happens, they're going to be responsible to take the gospel across the world. He talks about how the Holy Spirit's going to help them do that. He talks about how they have to abide in him. And there's all these things kind of being unloaded on the disciples. There's a lot of information. And just think about this with me. I was kind of wrestling through this and I brought it up with LIT at the beginning as we had our leader meeting. But 
for us here in this room, we have taken over two months to work through the upper room discourse, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, this last conversation. Uh, For the disciples, they only had like 20 or 30 minutes to take all this in. We've had two months. So imagine just trying to download all of this information and that Jesus is pouring out on you. You're hearing so much of it. And you start to realize, you know, they're probably feeling a bit overwhelmed. At this point, the disciples are probably a little anxious, a little worried. They're probably wondering, Jesus, what in the world is going on? Have any of you felt that way before? I've felt that way before. There are moments in life like this where everything going on around us is overwhelming. We thought we were maybe following Jesus and doing really well. Okay, now it's falling apart. Oh man, I was so excited about evangelizing to this person. They were responding, now they're not. Uh, This part of my life's on fire, but this part's not. You know, all these different things, personal life, work life, you name it. We can get discouraged and confused really easily when everything's overwhelming. And in those moments where we are overwhelmed and we realize that we're inadequate for the task at hand, what words of comfort does Jesus offer us? What words of comfort does Jesus offer us? Well, the disciples are about to find out. And so I want to read it for us, okay? John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Here's what he says. I have said these things to you. He's pointing back to the whole conversation there. When he says these things, he's talking about everything since chapter 13. I have said to you up to this point in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will not ask in my name. Oh, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds like pretty good news for the disciples. Don't worry, it's been taken care of. I've got this. Have you ever gone to a dinner that's really expensive before? And you're there and there's this little awkward dance. Am I paying for this? And then the the other guy's just like, boom, throws the card down. It's a good feeling, isn't it? To know that somebody's got it for you. I think the disciples were really glad to hear this news. Game, set, match. That's what Jesus says to his weak and worried followers. And it's what we need to be reminded of tonight in our own trials and in our own walk of faith. We can never move beyond this truth, guys. What we're going to talk about tonight, we can never move beyond this, that Christ has overcome. And so that's my title for this sermon. Christ has overcome. And looking at the text, there are three facets of what that truth means for us that I want to draw out. I've always heard that when you talk about Christ or the truths of God's word, it's almost like a diamond. 
And when you have a diamond and you shine light through it, and it's really beautiful, but you can turn it and all of a sudden you see different aspects of the light. And it makes it even more beautiful. That's what I want to do with this thought, that Christ has overcome. I want to turn it for us. I want us to see how beautiful it is. And I want it to be an encouragement to you that whatever is going on in life right now, Christ has overcome. Amen? Okay. Well, point number one, Jesus has revealed the Father. What does this mean that Christ has overcome? Well, first, it means that Jesus has revealed the Father. In verses 25 through 27 of this passage, Jesus explains to his disciples why they have had so much trouble understanding uh, some of the things that he's been teaching them. And then right after that, he's going to make a bombshell statement. So look at verse 25. He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. I'm going to stop there. Now, a couple things about that first verse. It's interesting, but from a language perspective, uh, when we think about the idea of figures of speech, Jesus definitely did that. He used parables, even like in the last passage that we looked at, he uses the illustration of a woman in labor. Those are all figures of speech, but that's not really what he's getting at here. When he says figures of speech, he's more in reference to the fact that it's been a little bit obscure. Some of his teaching has been hard to understand. So another way you could think of this is what Jesus is saying to them is that, hey, guys, look, I know this has been really hard to understand. I have just backed up the dump truck and gone with a ton of gospel truth. And he's even talked about this before. He said, look, the spirit's going to make it clear to you after I'm gone. But I know that this is a lot to understand. And I'm going to make it clear. And then right after that, he goes on to drop the bombshell. And here's what he says. But I will tell you plainly about my father. Now that is the bombshell. And why is that? Well, guys, it's because it reveals a major aspect of what Christ has done for us in his victory at the cross and what he has done for us before the victory at the cross. Namely, that he has revealed his father to us. A major part of Christ's work is that he reveals God the Father to us. And to understand why that is such a bombshell statement in this passage, you have to realize who God the Father is. Guys, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, here's how Paul describes the Father. He says, he is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. So who is God the Father? He is the one who is so radiant it's like the sun. You can't even stare at it without going blind. It's like that on steroids. It's, you, you can't even go near God. That's how awesome he is. There's no way. So then, if that's true and he's holy, we can't approach him, we start to value a little bit more that Jesus would reveal God the Father to us. We couldn't know him before. I think of the Israelites and, and all the laws that they had to go through just so one man could go in the presence of God in the tabernacle. This is fascinating. If you're on the Bible reading plan, we're in Leviticus, or we, we just finished Leviticus, actually. And there's all these different laws about these purification rites that the Israelite priests would have to go through. And some of them, you're like, this is ridiculous. It's like the fourth shower this dude's had in one day. He's got to like, wash these clothes, and then he's got to wash himself just to put on the clothes he just washed, and then they're going to sprinkle blood on it, and then he's going to go... And even added to that, what's so crazy to me is that you go through all of that, you'd sacrifice some goats, all for the purpose of cleansing yourself. You had to cleanse yourself to go before the presence of God because it was so holy, you would die if there was any sin on you or in you. And what's fascinating, this one just drives me up the wall. 
if you were the high priest and you were going in to offer like the final kind of sacrifice before the Lord, you would have to wear bells around your waist and a rope so that if there was sin on you and you dropped dead, they would know because there's no more like jingle, jingle, jingle. They like tug on it a couple times. Like, all right, let's pull them. And they drag you out. I mean, talk about like job, like security. You're like a little scared going in that day, right? You're with your family. Pray for me. I'm going in. We hope the bells jingle. You know, we don't want any, we don't want to stop. Like I, you read that and you're like, wow. Okay. One really thankful. We don't have to do that anymore. Christ has made a way to the father. And so Jesus comes in and he changes the whole thing where now, instead of us having to be so terrified that we will be struck dead by going in the presence of God, he goes, no, I'm going to make it plain to you who he is. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to tell you about him. He says that I'm going to tell you. And so he goes on and he does that even in this passage. And what does he have to say about the father? Well, the first thing he has to say is that the father loves us as we love Christ. This is a really interesting point. In verse 26, Jesus says, In that day, the day I explained it to you, you will ask in my name. And then he's going to say something that can be a little confusing. He says, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So he's literally saying, And I'm, he's like, What I'm not saying here is that I'm going to go, you will pray to me, and then I'll go ask God for you. He's like, I'm not saying that. And all of a sudden you're like, Wait, what? But isn't Jesus our high priest? Doesn't he intercede for us? Yes. That's still true, but he's trying to make a point because he goes on to say, for the father himself loves you. And here's what Jesus is trying to fight. And this is something that we wrestle with each and every one of us. He does not want you to think that Jesus is, you know, within the Trinity, the, the symbol of love. He's the loving part of God. And because we go to him, then he'll take it to God and convince God the father, who's the big bad meanie, then to answer it. And that's all you got to do. No, he's saying, look, we are triune. We are God. Like, God is love. The Father loves you. Why can you, pro- like, why can, what's the guarantee he'll answer your prayer? He loves you. And if you've been in a church that preaches only the law and they're always telling you how, how you're not enough, you've got to do more, you know what you start to believe? You start to believe that God is not loving. You start to believe that he is out to get you and you forget that he's the one who sent Jesus in the first place. God is loving. Jesus makes that plain. Even for the Israelites, remember, if they're going in with the bells, they're probably terrified of God. Loving probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Jesus says, I'll make it clear to you who the Father is. That's part of the victory for us. And with that, he also reveals that God will answer prayers as we love Christ, as we submit to his will. He says, the Father himself loves you. He will answer. And he says, the reason why he loves you is because you've loved me. Again, kind of a troubling verse. You're like, okay, is that conditional then? That's conditional language. Is that saying that God only loves us if we love him? Well, you have to take it in the context of all of scripture. What does 1 John 4.19 say? It says that we love because he first loved us. You take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. You go to passage after passage after passage, and what do you find? The only way that we can love Jesus is if he and God the Father loves us first. And it's saying that as God produces the gift of faith and love in us towards his son, it only stirs him to love us more. So that's what Christ is getting at. God loves you, and he reveals what God has done. And, you know, as I think about this, it reminded me of my own family, uh, this, this idea that Christ reveals the Father to us. And 
part of my background is I come from a ministry family. So my dad's a pastor. His dad was a pastor and so on and so forth. I think I'm a, a seventh or eighth generation pastor, which is just a testimony that somewhere back down the road, some old lady was praying for us like nobody's business. I believe that. Great, 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 great grandma somewhere. But there's been a long line of ministry. And one of the really cool things about that heritage is just that, wow, God, you've been really faithful to the Duncan family. Being thankful for that. But um, beyond that, also just I've always had a reverence for those guys before me. I've always thought highly of them. And I've always wanted to aspire to be like them. And that's really true of my grandfather. Uh, I actually never got to meet him, at least not while I was cognizant. I was a little baby. But he passed away with liver cancer which is crazy because he was like fundamentalist, so he never drank. Got him anyways. Um, it's okay, I can make that joke because he's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. But uh, what's funny is I look up to him and though I've never met him and I won't get to see him till we're face to face, I still know a lot about him because of my dad. And I've learned a lot about my grandfather from his son. And my whole life I've grown up hearing stories about, you know, oh, well, your grandfather, he did this in the church. And oh, you'll remember, he was all the life of the party, all these things to the point where I feel like I do know him because I've heard about it so much. And I know that's not a perfect illustration, but I do think it captures what Christ does for us with his own father. He shares, he tells us who he is. And then one day we'll get to go see him. And so there's this beautiful gift. And I think we see this play out in scripture, especially on the road to Emmaus. When he talks about, I'm gonna speak plainly to you after this hour. Uh, you know, the whole story, there's the two disciples, Jesus has died and they're kind of in their woes walking down the road and a stranger comes up and this is one of the strangest things. You're like, How do they not know it's Jesus? <laughs> like, it's like if I moved away and came back like a year later and you're like, who are you? You're like, it's me. <laughs> it's Jesus. You know, it's only been three days. They don't know who it is. Sorry. That's just total. This always bothered me. <laughs> they don't know it's Jesus. And they don't realize it until he starts to explain the Bible to them. That's when their eyes open. And in that whole passage, it says that he's explaining the scriptures and telling them how it points back to him being the Messiah. But don't you think as that was happening, he was showing them that this was my father's plan the whole time? He was revealing the father to them. And he's doing the same thing for us. Part of the victory we have in Christ is that he has revealed his father to us. But the question I have is what qualifies Jesus to do that? What qualifies Jesus to reveal the Father to us more than maybe the rabbinical like Sadducees and Pharisees of the day? Why can Jesus be the one who reveals the Father, not Gandhi or someone else? Well, there's a really important point you have to remember, and it's my second one, and it's that Jesus has come from the Father. Jesus has come from the Father. In verse 28, Jesus is still speaking, and he says, you know, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So what does Jesus say? He's saying, guess where I'm from? (laughs) Not this earth. I've come from above, and I've come down. What this is is a claim of deity. Jesus is saying that he is not only a man, but he is God the Son. That's what qualifies him to reveal the Father to us. That's the only reason. His sonship is what qualifies him for the job. So it doesn't matter that he's younger than the other Pharisees. Guess what? They are not God. 
It doesn't matter if they're like the wisest dude in the world or the smartest scientist. Guess what? That person is not God. Only God could reveal God to us. And that's what Jesus does. It doesn't matter that he was from Nazareth. Christ is both God and man, which means he is the most qualified to reveal his father to us. And it means that he's the only one qualified to save us from our sins. This is such an important point. So don't miss it. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is God. I want to say that as many times as possible so that you would not walk out of this room thinking something else. Because the entire world, what they will say is, you know, Jesus, he was a good man. He had good morals. He was a good teacher. And I would look at you and I would say, no, (laughs) to say that means he's a liar. If you say Jesus is a good man, but not God, you're it's an oxymoron because he claimed to be God. So either he's lying, either he was crazy, or he is what he says he was. And he's the Lord. Anything less than that is not enough to save you. Anything less than that means he wasn't qualified to tell us anything about God. He, could, he should have kept his mouth shut at that point. So all of Christian faith rests on this claim that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And this is not fully explicit in this text, but I want to go into it because it is so important for us. How can you be saved from your sin? Only by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross for you. You wanna know why that is? Because he is the only person who is both man and God. If it was just God dying for our sins, he's not the substitute because he hasn't walked where we have walked. He is not a man like we are, doesn't work. So he has to be a man. But if he's only a man, And even if he never sins, he is only good to save one soul. Jesus comes, lives the perfect life, gets crucified. Somehow that works. One person gets to go to heaven. He has to be more. It is only if Jesus Christ is fully the son of God, fully man, so that while he is man, perfect substitute, being God, his life is of infinite value, so that no matter how many people are born on this earth, no matter how many people go to Christ and say, I need your blood, he says, it's enough. It's enough. Jesus comes from the Father. And because of that, he is the king who can come overcome the world. And uh, just thinking through pictures of this that have really captured my heart, I think C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites. If you've ever read The Horse and His Boy, the, the main character of that story is named Shasta. And he is... He has this kind of this whole uh, story arc where he was abandoned as a child. They found him, you know, on a boat and he was raised as like a slave, essentially. And then by the end of the book, he's in this, this land far away from Narnia. He ends up traveling back to Narnia and he meets the king and he meets the son of the king. They look really similar. You're like, okay, what's going on here? Well, you come to find out that Shasta is the son of the king. And so it's this interesting kind of play on the prince and the pauper dynamic of you have the prince who was lost and then restored. And what you see in scripture is that you have the king coming down, being humbled, emptying himself, and then being exalted beyond anything we could ever imagine. And it's a wonderful story. And what Jesus is talking about when he says, I have come into the world, he's talking about his humiliation, the the, the, the part where he came down to our level, I always think of like baby talk, 
right? If you, I'm in the kids' ministry. If I'm talking to babies, I don't talk to them about justification or mortification of sin or, you know, the hypostatic union. I don't do that. I go, ah, like, you know, like you're just trying to make them smile. And the funny thing is that's how God communicates to us. It's a great picture. He has to stoop down to where we are. Guess what happened? Jesus literally stooped down to where we are. And he came down to reveal the Father to us. But even though he's done that, he then goes on to say, I'm now leaving the world and going to the Father. So not only is he looking back, I've been humbled. I'm going to be even more so at the cross. He says, then I'm going back up to the Father. He's talking about his glorification. He's saying, after I have been crucified on the cross, I will not stay dead. I'm God. I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to be with the Father, and I will be glorified with him. And that's where he is right now. You want to know where Jesus is? He's reigning on the throne. He's with his Father, and he's still revealing him to us through his spoken word. And again, I emphasize this point because there are a lot of religions that get this wrong. There's a lot of religions that affirm Jesus Christ existed. Maybe that he had power, but they would not say that he is the Son of God. And to that, I would offer them Titus 2.13. It says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our God. He's nothing less. And because of that, he is qualified to reveal the Father to us. And finally, because of that, he is conquered with the Father. And this is my last point. Jesus has conquered with the Father. Look at verse 29 with me. I love this part. (laughs) Jesus is talking to the disciples as the disciples say, Ah, now we get it. You're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. And you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you've come from God. I'm mocking them if you can't tell. Here's why. I think this is a very genuine profession of faith from the disciples. I don't want to make light of that. They are saying, we believe you're God. We should never mock that. But there is an element of like pride and arrogance in the way they say this, isn't there? I feel like John, as he wrote that, is just like dripping with like satire and irony. Ah, now we get it. Lord, this is why we have said you do not need to be questioned. It's like, oh, yeah, you only have authority because we give it to you, Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. He goes, do you now believe? Like, really, guys? (laughs) We're here now? He kind of just calls it out what it is. And he's saying, look, (laughs) you may think you know who I am. You may think you're hot. You may think, you know, you're the best thing since sliced bread. You're going to be fine. But look what's going to happen. The next verse. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home. And guess what you will do? You will leave me alone. You want to know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This is God speaking. There we go. Who's the son but Christ, the one who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus, I think, is very clearly referencing this prophecy, which was made hundreds of years before, that one day there would be a Messiah, he would come, and then the people closest to him would abandon him in his moment of need. 
Have any of you ever been abandoned before in your time of need? It's not a fun thing to go through. Like you ever had somebody like, this was something serious and you didn't come through. Like this is like the dad not making it to his kid's first baseball game kind of moment. It's serious. You're like, whoa. You think you're hot? You think, oh, you've given me authority, disciples? Guess what? You are all going to scatter. I'm going to be arrested probably within hours of this moment. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to run away. You're going to go hide in your houses. You're going to close the doors. And then we know they're going to go fishing. Like that's the best you guys can come up with. And you're going to leave me. And here's the thing. Of all the, the, this passage offers to us, I think that is the clearest description of us you're going to find. What part do we play? We are the ones who abandon Christ so very often. Do we not? There are moments where Jesus is calling us to share our faith. There are moments where we're called to stay in a hard moment of suffering, to endure. And you know what happens? We'd love to say that we spoke up or that we stuck it out, but we actually just walk away and we leave and we do the easy thing. I've done that in my own life many times. <laughs> and you come back and then you're just guilt-ridden the rest of the day. Lord, I, you literally gave me the opportunity to share the gospel and I was either too afraid or I didn't even care about that person's soul. And we walk away, we're scattered and we all leave. But you wanna know what the good news is? It's that even though we and the disciples are very fickle, the father is very faithful. When you look at this in verse, I think it's, 30, oh no, 32. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. And it's a great passage. And I think it points to the unity that Christ had with his father that the entire way to the cross, God was with him. God, the father was with the son. He was saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, some people would say, doesn't this cause issues? It says that, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's still true. At that moment, Christ was cut off. But I think Jesus is saying, he's going to guide me. My father will guide me right up to the hill. None of you are going to get to that point. You're all going to abandon me. Even John, it says you're there. But no, I'm abandoned. God will take me all the way. And that strengthened Christ so that he could conquer and that's why my point isn't just that Jesus has conquered, it's that he conquered with the Father. It was with the Father. This was the act of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together to save us from our sins. And so what happens is that Jesus goes to the cross and that he suffers and that he dies. And in that moment, he rescues all of who would believe in him from their sin, from the very thing that would condemn us. And I think that's what he's talking about later on in verse 33 when he says, I have overcome the world. Take heart. What Jesus is speaking of is sin. He's saying, I've overcome the world. What's in it? Sin. <laughs> I've overcome that. What's, oh, what else is in the world? Oh, the devil. Guess what? I overcame that too. 40 days he tempted me. Overcame it. You want to know what else I overcame? Death itself. And I think Jesus, when he says, I have overcome the world, he's both looking back and forward for us. He's talking about his victory, his future victory at the cross where he conquers with the Father. And just to reemphasize, I think a really important verse for us all to know is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It talks about how God the Father enacted salvation for us upon Jesus. So here's what it says. For our sake, God the Father, it uses the word he, but that's who it's talking about. For our sake, he, 
made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You want to know what that tells me? It was a joint operation. There was no discrepancies. God the Father, God the Son, both were fully committed to the mission of saving you from your sin. No matter what it would cost. (laughs) It cost dearly. And yet Jesus poured out his own blood on the cross so that you could be his. And because of that, Jesus now has the power over all things. And I love how this, this passage ends. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Anyone else like, yes, peace. I could use some of that. Why? Because as he says, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is really a summary of everything we've talked about. I've been going off on on all these passages now for a couple weeks. It's very much one message that John is taking the nail and trying to just pound it into our heads as much as he can. It's that there is hardship in life and the hope you have is that at the end you get Jesus if you're found in him. And so what's he going to do at the very end of this, like this, this talk, this discourse? He's going to say it one more time. Tribulation? Yes. Overcoming? Yes. Because I've already done it for you. And uh, I think if I could encourage you guys with the story of, of someone who lived this out, I would direct your attention to a man named John Patton. Uh, he was a missionary. And the uh, mission that he went on to was an island called Anawa. And what was so fascinating and what makes his story so famous is that it was filled with like cannibals who would eat you after they killed you. Imagine that, like, man, not only will we fight to the death, but then I'm going to eat you. (laughs) You're like terrified. Patton's like, yeah, let's go share the gospel there. So he shows up. There's pagan practices all around. They're they're sacrificing children to pagan gods. If if your uh, husband died and you were the widow, they would kill you so you could go serve your husband in the afterlife. There's just pagan stuff. It was dark. Patton shows up, preaches the gospel. Very early on, both his wife and his child die. He has to bury them. He presses through that, keeps sharing the gospel, finds himself in all these situations where angry mobs are chasing him down, trying to kill him. And there's one specific moment that always catches my attention. He, he's surrounded. And it says that as he's surrounded with men, with muskets, all these things, Here's what he says. He's he's recounting it. He said, in that moment, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus and I saw him watching all the scene. And in that moment, my peace came back to me like a wave from God. And I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. He keeps going. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club to prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is, has all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. <laughs> you want to know the conviction that ruled John Patton's heart? It was that Christ has overcome. You want to have courage and peace in life? Find the conviction that Christ has overcome. Come back to passages like this. Remind yourself always, this is what the disciples were having to do. We're suffering. We're dying. Some of us are being martyred right now, but we know Jesus has overcome. We know he has overcome. And I love the exhortation. There's one application of this sermon that you find in this passage, and here's what it is. It's the one action statement that Jesus gives. He says, take heart. Take heart. 
If you translate that, there's a couple ways you can do it. One of them, that's my favorite, is be of good cheer. You want to, it means put a smile on your face as you suffer. And I love that picture that Christians, because they know Christ has overcome, should be the first ones to go into trials, first ones to suffer, and they should do it with a smile on their face, joyful, not pretending, not faking, but saying, I know, I have Jesus. What are you going to do to me? That's so powerful. And you think that's awesome when you're standing in front of savages. But what about when you're in the middle of heartbreak and it's been two months and you still can't get over it and it still just wrecks you every night. But then you're standing there, bring it on. My family doesn't want to talk to me anymore. I don't care. I have Jesus. You're coming after me and making lies about me. You're smearing my character. You have no reason to do it. I have Jesus. Amen. That is what Paul is talking, not Paul, Jesus himself is saying. He says, take heart. Another translation, be of good courage. And so here's my exhortation to us. I wanted to end this whole discourse just firing us up because that's what it did to me. And so do not fear. Do not fear, but take heart. And the way that you do that is not by, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and, you know, watching like, David, you know, I don't know, Goggins or Jocko for a while and like just, all right, I'm taking pre-workout, I'm fired up, let's go. No. And I say that as a joke, but oh, is it true? In the church, you'll hear guys get up and preach a hoorah sermon. We're all going to charge the gates. But you want to know what it says in Psalm 20, verse 7? It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so as you are taking heart and, and putting off fear, don't do it by trying to make yourself more. Don't do it by trying to make everything else seem smaller. Do it by getting a bigger picture of who God is and remembering that he is the one who has overcome the world. And then after you've done that, get in the game. Get in the game and start to serve. Get in the game and start to share the gospel with people. Get in the game and start reading your Bible. Take it seriously. That's where the, the application of this is coming because the disciples were about to watch as their savior was taken away from them. You wanna know the message they needed to hear? <laughs> I have overcome the world. The message we need to hear, I have overcome the world because they're gonna be hard things. That's gonna happen, especially at this age group for 20s. We're gonna have things that cost us. But if we can seize on to the conviction that Christ has overcome the world, there is nothing that will stop us from reaching this city with the gospel. I'll never forget, again, coming back to John Patton. It's so fascinating. Uh, everything was against him. Like he had this whole nation of savages against him. Uh, people back at the church were telling him, why are you going? You're crazy. Even his own weakness, his own flesh. And he talks about, you know, I came and I saw that these, this was a people who had no idea of a God of grace and mercy. But then after 15 years, he writes again, um, and he recounts and he says, I have claimed Anawa for Christ. He says, the savages now bend at the knee of their savior. Now, we don't have savages in Rockford, but how incredible would it be if five years, 10 years, 15 years, may it be in our lifetime, maybe not even then beyond that. But how incredible would it be if one day we stand and we say, you know, we have claimed Rockford for Christ. The people who were lost, who were broken, who were looking for hope in the wrong places, they now sit, they bend the knee at the foot of their Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's the mission. And what we need is courage. And that courage comes from the conviction that Christ has overcome. And so if you're here tonight, uh, this has really been a message for those of you that are following Jesus, but you might be here and you might be on the other side of that. You might be the one who has been looking for joy, been looking for hope in the wrong places. Uh, You are someone maybe who is fearful. You don't have any courage. You're looking where to find that. Is it found in you? The answer is no. You're not good enough. None of us are. The good news I have for you tonight is that Christ offers hope because he did overcome. And we now live in the time of grace. We live in a time where you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I even prayed it out loud, but I love the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the gospel, that none of us here have earned anything. None of us are put together. Don't think that about me. Don't think about anyone who comes up and speaks. We're all broken. The only thing, the, the only thing that we have is a Savior who has rescued us from that sin. And so I would encourage you, if God is pressing that on your heart to bend the knee to Christ, and what that means is you repent, <laughs> you take sin, which is really just your love of yourself and everything that's not God, and you say, I'm turning away from that, and I want to trust in Christ. That's what belief is, and it says in Scripture that if you do that, you will be saved. And I would encourage you, and I even just want to end as we close with prayer, with the time for you to pray, and you to wrestle through that. One, God, I need courage. If you're a believer, pray. God, give me courage this week to step in to what you are calling me to do by faith. And then if you're here and you're not a believer, I encourage you to pray. You might feel uncomfortable about that, but it's simply just talking to God. What is prayer? It's pouring out your heart to God. I mean, it's a good thing. And just saying, God, don't know if you're real. Don't know if you exist, but I want to know. I want to have courage. I want to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. Pray that and say, God, show me your son, Jesus Christ, and teach me to love him. And then find somebody tonight and go tell them that's what you were doing and, and press in, okay? And so I'd ask that you bow, bow your heads with me as I, as I close this in prayer and that you would pray with me, uh, obviously quietly or to yourself. But just take a moment, God. <laughs> you know how broken I am. Tell them that. Tell them that you need courage. Tell them that you need faith and, and ask that he would give it to you.